0: Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Benal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of America.com with another edition of BOA Audio, Season 3. Our guest is Greg Reese, author of UFO Religion, Inside Flying Saucer, Cults and Culture. I'm especially excited to bring Greg on the program, because this interview was one of the very first, if not the very first, interview that Greg did on UFO Religion so I'm really psyched to be introducing him to the BOA Audio listening audience. He is a fresh voice to the field of ufology, an outsider with a tremendous scholarly background who is looking at elements of the UFO world that a lot of people haven't really taken a look at. In this interview, we're going to be talking about belief systems associated with the UFO phenomenon, the contactee movement, UFO cults, and how UFO revelations may affect Christianity. Additionally, we'll be talking about the ancient astronaut theory new gods versus old gods, fear as the driving force behind ufology, and of course, tons and tons more. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Greg Reese, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Gregory L. Reese holds a PhD in Religious Studies from the Claremont Graduate University in Claremont, California. He's also a graduate of the Vanderbilt Divinity School, Samford University, and Martin Methodist College. He's the author of UFO Religion, Inside Flying Saucer Cults and Culture, and Elvis Religion, the Cult of the King, one of the top five pop music books of 2006, according to the Sunday Times of London. He's also the author of Irony and Religious Belief, an interpretation of the theories of religion of Soren Kierkegaard, Ludwig Wittingstein, and Richard Rorty. His research and publishing interests include Philosophy of Religion and the Study of New Religious Movements. Dr. Reese is a freelance writer who resides in Montevallo, Alabama. He is currently working on a book entitled Weird Science and Bizarre Beliefs, Mysterious Creatures, Lost Worlds, and Amazing Inventions. His website is www.uforeligion.com. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 2nd, 2007, Greg Reese talking about UFO religion inside flying saucer cults and culture on BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. This week we have a very special guest. He is the author of the book, UFO Religion, Inside Flying Saucer Cults and Culture. He is Greg Reese. That's his book. It's a fantastic book. I just finished it yesterday. It's very interesting. It takes a real interesting look at some of the groups and uh, organizations, if you will, that spring up centered around the UFO phenomenon, why they come about, and what they're all about, sort of a real interesting look at the people as opposed to the phenomenon, and uh, that's really obviously what we're really interested in here on BOA Audio is the people, not so much the phenomenon, so it's a great book in that regard, and I'm excited to bring him here on the show. Greg Reese, welcome to Banal of America Audio. Hey, it's wonderful to be here tonight. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. Awesome, awesome. Uh, For starters, uh, tell people a little bit about you, you know, your bio, your background uh, where you came from, what your work was like, and how you got interested in the paranormal phenomenon, UFO subject. Sure. Um, my official training is uh, in uh, philosophy of religion, and um,
1: I have a Ph.D. in philosophy of religion from Claremont Graduate School out in uh, Southern California, and am trained in the uh, what we call the Wittgensteinian Analysis of Religious Belief. And uh, unlike most of my... Um, uh, the fellows in my field. I'm far more interested in uh, new and esoteric religious movements than I am in the, uh, you know, the, the classical uh, religions—Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and so forth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so, what I've attempted to do with this book is to apply some of my uh, my training in the study of mainstream religion to this this far more interesting and uh, um, and rapidly developing. Thing that we call, you know, esoterica, the UFO religion. Um, I um, am a resident of uh, Montevallo, Alabama, where I'm I'm an independent scholar, full-time writer, and um, have uh, had an interest in flying saucers ever since I was a kid. Um, I think my first memory is of. the Falkville, Alabama sighting, which happened, I guess, maybe back in 1973 or something like that, in which, um, Sheriff Greenhaw, the sheriff of, uh, Falkville photographed, uh, a little, little alien creature, uh, in tinfoil, or so it appeared in the photographs, and made the local news. He was a, sort of a big celebrity in North Alabama, where I was from, and, um, I haven't been able to shake that, uh, all of my life, even though I've, as I said, I've, pursued higher education, and uh, learned all the things that are supposed to be real and supposed to be true, I uh, haven't been able to shake the, the psychological impact that grainy photograph had on me as a child. It, it, I think it awoke a sense of wonder in me that uh, maybe there's more to life than um, than I've, I've been taught by my parents
0: and by the society that I know. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of came into this from the description. You have a great story about uh, going to the UFO Congress, and I think it's in Laughlin, Nevada. But you, you sort of came into this as an outsider uh, tackling the UFO subject. Talk a little bit about, I guess, sort of just how you even started looking into the UFO phenomenon for the book, at least.
1: Right. Um, yeah, I, I was, as I said, I was very interested in, as someone who's not a, a true believer, um, in the sense that I'm. I mean, I don't. I don't come to the table with any, uh, personal experiences of UFO encounters or any sort of, uh, paranormal experience. I don't come with any, uh, you know, belief or, or attitudes about the subject other than someone who's very interested, uh, in the phenomena itself. And, um, so one, one of the things I, I've tried real hard to do in the book is to approach the subject, um, as an outsider, but not as a skeptical outsider. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not so much interested in, you know poking fun at people or in which which a lot of people do uh, in this field and I'm not interested in being a skeptic i mean i'm not uh, this is not the the skeptic magazine approach in which you which I try to debunk all of the beliefs that I encounter I'm really interested in them I find them compelling uh even even if they're not compelling to me personally to accept as as true they're compelling in that they they illustrate the Wonderful human dramas and wonderful personalities. Um so one of the first things I, I did was to go out to, to Laughlin, Nevada for the UFO Congress a couple of years ago. And, uh, one of the great things about that group is that, uh, pretty much the entire spectrum of uh, ufology is represented there. Yeah. Uh, you know, the nuts and bolts guys were there. The, um, um the abductee proponents were there. Um, and then some of, you know, there were some people who were regularly reporting transmissions from extraterrestrial governments, um, and, and sort of looking very much like the old, you know, 1950s contactee movement. And that, that, that meeting out in Laughlin every year is, uh, is is vibrant for that reason, because you have all these different approaches to it. And I, I did, I tried to approach it uh, as an outsider, as, um, but someone who had a real interest. One of the the neat things I did was to go out on a, on a skywatch. There was an informal group of people who wanted to leave the confines of the um, of the casino, if, if you can imagine wanting to do that. Um, and we went out in the Mojave. It was pitch dark. I had no idea who anyone was, and uh, couldn't even see the faces of the people that I that I met there. It was a, kind of a strange experience in that sense. That I was uh, out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of people. I not only I did not know who they were I didn't even know what they looked like because yeah. it was so dark yeah and uh, we spread a blanket on the ground and we sat around in a circle and a couple of people brought some didgeridoos and they played and uh uh you know we didn't have a sighting but I was really moved by my encounter with those uh, faceless and nameless protagonists out out in the desert who told their their stories of uh of their encounters um One woman recounted uh, the fact that she had been in Washington D.C. and and I believe was it 1952 when the when the classic sightings happened in D.C. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I talked with someone who had um, who reported having extraterrestrial visitors in her bedroom at night. Um, So you have someone who had this, you know, encounter, the scene by hundreds if not thousands of people of lights in the sky and then someone who had a very intimate encounter with something she couldn't explain in in her own bedroom and and um you know these people weren't um they didn't strike me as being nutty they didn't strike me as being stupid um they struck me as being sincere and intelligent people and even though i wasn't compelled to accept you know the The answer that they had found that they're extraterrestrials visiting the earth uh I was intrigued by these human beings that I encountered there,
0: and you sort of touch on one of the big sticking points in ufology, and of course uh that's like that nuts and bolts versus what you call in the book as is, is what they call actually uh the lunatic fringe. your book it does a pretty good job of of sort of looking at both sides and and you explained very well in the introduction that you have to look at the nuts and bolts once before you can get to what they call lunatic fringe, you know, or or people that take the UFO influence and really run with it, if you will, and turn it into something else. I guess for starters, just sort of talk about that nuts and bolts versus lunatic fringe uh, schism, I guess you could say, that started sort of in ufology in the 50s and, and has gone on for a long time.
1: Well, sure. The, the, very early on um, in ufology, you have – you had two, I don't know if they were competing camps, but two uh, opposing camps. Um, some who insisted that what we are dealing with are physical phenomena, which must have some sort of physical explanation. People who brought um, a scientific background primarily to the study of unidentified flying objects. Um, very often they call themselves and we're called by others nuts and bolts ufologists because of their belief that finally what we're looking at here uh is something that can be reduced to nuts and bolts. It can be reduced to machinery. Uh it can be reduced to something that is physical. We're talking about physical visitors from another planet, another galaxy, flying in physical craft, which may be far beyond anything we can imagine, uh but is nevertheless Subject to the laws of physics and subject to the physical world that we all inhabit, it may look to uh, to observers in our from from primitive Earth as if these beings are supernatural. But uh, we we only assume that that is because they are so far in advance of us technologically. Yeah. I believe it was Arthur C. Clarke who who said. Uh, Uh, the technology of an advanced civilization is bound to look like magic to primitives. And so we're the primitives, and this great technology may look like magic to us, but finally it it is a physical occurrence. Now, uh, as much, I think, as the nuts and bolts people tried hard to insist that they were pursuing science and that ufology could and should be a science, there was from the very beginning, maybe even prior to the nuts and that's in both folks, a, a strong uh, theme of spirituality in the ufological community. Uh this arises uh, in some parts out of theosophy, in some parts out of uh out of the Shaver mystery, um and Ray Palmer's work. And so that you you have people who began to make claims. The most one of the most one of the earliest and most famous, no doubt is Georgia Damski,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who who said Okay uh these are physical beings on a physical craft but they're coming with a and they're giving us a spiritual truth this is not primarily a scientific matter this ufo's are primarily a religious phenomena um the beings on board the craft are coming with messages uh, in adamski's case uh, warnings of nuclear possible nuclear disaster of uh, examples of how we might seek out and find world peace um this gets uh, These distinctions get murky, however, as as time progressed. And so by the time you have, for example, um, the 1970s, 80s, and and then in the 90s, the abductee movement in ufology, where people are beginning to make the claim that uh, they've been abducted by extraterrestrial beings, there you see this sort of mixture of the the two approaches to ufology coming coming together there. So you have... Uh, the claim that these are physical beings from another planet coming to do physical experiments on human beings. And yet, very often, the context uh, is, is a religious context. Yeah. I mean, when you're awakened in the middle of the night by a vision, um, you can't help but think of that in religious terms, even if it is a physical being that is awakening you. Uh, and And the kinds of stories that people told about coming back from the experiences of abduction having their lives transformed, no longer able to think in the way that they used to think. Um, Being aware, even if they couldn't directly remember the event, but being aware that something significant had happened in their lives is very uh, akin to the way people describe religious experiences and religious conversions. Yeah. And so even though the two areas are still distinct and sometimes still warring with one another, um... There's a great deal of overlap, and one of the things I, I try to do in my book is uh, make the distinctions between the two approaches to the subject, but also show how you can't really have one without the other, um, that there is a great deal of nuts-and-bolts ufology that must be understood in order to get to the point where you can have uh, spiritual experiences with extraterrestrials, and there is likewise um, – a certain mystical element even to the most scientific approach to uh, flying saucer studies.
0: Yeah. And one of the points you raise in the book that I thought was really interesting is that even though the nuts and bolts folks, they're kind of, you know, they're down on the other side in the spiritual aspect and they call them the lunatic French and everything, there is sort of a built-in belief structure, if you will, within that sort of nuts and bolts ufology. And We've seen that a lot in recent years with the ongoing debate about the extraterrestrial hypothesis. That that seems to be one of the big foundations of the UFO world. and thats I mean, that's a belief structure because obviously we don't know if there's ETs uh, piloting these things, but it seems like since the 50s or so, that's been the source, I guess you could say, for UFOs and other aspects of the belief structures such as, you know, government cover-up, like that sort of thing. I guess talk a little bit about how even though the nuts and bolts people, they're really interested in science, in the nuts and bolts aspect of ufology, there is a belief structure. And I guess you could say it's not necessarily like a religion, but in a way it sort of is.
1: Oh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, it's it's no mystery that nuts and bolts ufology has not been accepted uh, within the world of mainstream science. Mm-hmm. And um, I think part of the reason for that is that you, you have a you do have a competing belief structure, so that um, nuts and bolts ufology doesn't share the belief structure in the entire belief structure that mainstream science with, that mainstream science has, um, and that the difference between the two is one of the things that that have have kept them uh, clearly apart and and somewhat at war for the last fifty years. But right, even in nuts and bolts ufology, then you have a belief structure, some of which borders on supernaturalism. I mean the the idea that the federal government could be so omniscient and omnipowerful that it could uh, keep all of this under wraps for 50 years. Yeah. That the idea that the federal government has this I any mean, has this power over human beings uh is a kind of it's kind of a religious structure. I mean there is an omniscient being in nuts and bolts ufology, very often, and that is, um, the government, yeah. at least among the conspiracy buffs. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, and that's that element of mystery is, that is normally associated with, um, the ineffable deity is often applied within conspiracy theories to the government, or if not the government, at least to some secret government organization within the government so that you have, for example, the men in black who represent um, this near mystical power that the government has. These are, I suppose you, you'd say these are like dark angels that um, that visit UFO witnesses on behalf of the sinister power of the government. And uh, they have, you know, Great power. They can, uh, they appear suddenly and disappear. They have the ability to, uh, uh, threaten one's life so that to the point that you believe what they say and refuse to talk about what you've seen. And, and they operate in such a near mystical fashion. So that you, you and then you actually have this, this tradition of men in black, of black robed figures going back into even into ancient mythology, in which these are all often uh, messengers of, of doom or of dark powers. And so even though people might say we're dealing with purely physical phenomena here, these men in black are physical people who are representatives of a physical government, nevertheless, it has taken on a kind of uh, religious aura. Um, I mean, I've I always been struck by, by the difference, say, between Kehoe and Edwards, who are kind of a couple of the classic nuts and bolts folks,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, uh, and Hynek, who's also uh, of that same persuasion. But there are differences in their attitudes toward the government. Uh, Edwards and Kehoe, I think, wanted to believe that the government was this all-powerful thing that knew the answers uh, while Hynek, having I guess having worked uh, uh, for the government in UFO research, approached the subject by saying, "Look, the problem is these. The government doesn't doesn't know what's happening. They're they're not as bright as you might think they are." Yeah, uh, I tend to be of that <laughs> that school myself. I mean, I, what one of the things that I find. Um, incredible about, you know, claims about government conspiracies is that the government could be that powerful and that good, when the only evidence I have of the way the government acts is that it appears to be rather rather weak and simple-minded, and if it's diabolical, it's um, diabolical despite itself, not because it's got some evil plan, but because it doesn't see things as clearly as it ought to. So that um, that idea that the government is this pervasive evil force is itself I think a kind of religious belief,
0: yeah, and that's the tough thing I guess about the uFO phenomenon is that uh the people who investigate it because it's such a mystery, they bring their own sort of baggage with them, and that colors their interpretation of the mystery well, yeah, I think that's true
1: of, of uh, everybody, and you know that's 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 true of the human condition that um, whenever we approach a subject we we bring a, a great deal of ourselves to it, but you're right because. The UFO mystery is a mystery, um, because we haven't been able to get our hands on any of those nuts and bolts yet. At least, um, we haven't been able to get our hands on them so that the mainstream society knows of it and can study it. Uh, it's a lot easier to bring our, our backgrounds and our presumptions to the table so that, um, I mean, you, you clearly see this with, with people like, uh, Adamski and, uh who was so trained in the, in theosophy and when the ufo movement broke on the scene and when arnold had the sighting and people began to talk about flying saucers and people from other planets uh it was so easy to see how Ad, how adamski could uh locate all of his theosophical notions within now within the world of ufology so instead of mystics from tibet communicating uh with someone to tell him the truths of creation he has uh, mystics from venus communicating with him uh, about the truths of creation um but that's true i think uh, across the board we all bring our as much as i try not to in in my book we all bring our uh, assumptions to the table i mean what i bring is probably my um skeptical ironic you know early 21st century uh kind of Distance from everything. Yeah, uh, that's what I bring to the to the table when I approach the subject, and that's probably what you end up with when you read the book. Is that this this uh, is written by a dilettante, someone who just wants to drop in and and see what's going on in this conversation, even though I don't ha- really have anything big at stake in it. And um, so probably I've missed some things because of that. Hopefully, it also means though that I've brought some things to the table that a devoted believer might not bring, or that a, a diehard skeptic who was just out to prove how foolish all of this is uh, wouldn't be able to bring to the table.
0: One of the things you came out pretty hard against in the book was not necessarily against the actual idea, but just against uh, the way it's being handled, I guess you could say. That would be the abduction phenomenon, and then sort of the the little side road that has gone down now, and that's that the reproductive agenda, the hybrid situation. And you seem really... Uh, anti the way it's being handled because the people who are coming to these conclusions via hypnosis and all that stuff, they can't really provide any help for these people. They're confirming their worst fears and then sending them on the way. They're not really helping them very much. Talk a little bit about your thoughts on on the whole reproductive agenda, the hybrid situation, and, and maybe how you feel that's being handled.
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I, I admit, I mean, sometimes even objective observers um, get their emotions and their Points of view wrapped up in things. And one of the things that I, I, I guess I do find, um, to be somewhat abhorrent are the claims associated with, um, the, some of the claims associated with the abduction phenomena and with, uh, the idea of the reproductive agenda. Um, simply because I, I find it so disturbing that you obviously have individuals, mostly women, uh, in terms of the reproductive agenda who are experiencing traumatic events in in their lives and i just don't know that it's the healthiest thing um for relatively um, how do i say this tactfully people who are relatively unsophisticated and um unschooled that's not tactful at all but people, <laughs> people who are unsophisticated and unschooled in you know um in the, the field of mental health bringing things to the table for 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 these women that might actually cause them greater psychological and personal emotional harm uh than it would than it would help uh, i mean obviously we when we're talking about the abduction phenomenon and the idea that um, for example that a, a woman may be impregnated with a hybrid child only to have the child uh or or the the fetus removed from the womb and then uh, uh and then Later, um, shown to the woman as a as a child on an alien spacecraft. I mean, one of the assumptions I I would make is that we're dealing here with a woman who, perhaps at least in our normal everyday parlance, has experienced a, a miscarriage. Uh, she's lost a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's. I would assume, in, in these cases, is, is a fact for most of the people in, involved who make that claim. I, I just sort of trust that they're actually telling the truth here, that they were uh, pregnant and then they weren't pregnant anymore. Yeah. And there's a, there's a tragedy involved in that, a personal tragedy for individual lives, for individual women, individual families. And it, but then we, we take the step from that to the, the hypothesis that cause of certain repressed memories that one has or certain dreams one has or certain vibrant waking memories that one has, we can assume that what has happened is the, the fetus has been removed by extraterrestrials and is uh, being raised on a, on a spacecraft without love and kindness and human emotion and human touch and comfort. Uh, that leap is, is a pretty big leap. We're dealing with a fact. A woman has had a miscarriage has lost a pregnancy even with the best evidence we could muster at this point i think we'd have to say that the idea that extraterrestrials are responsible for this is uh is a hypothesis yeah not yet a theory we don't have proof yet even to make that a theory it's a hypothesis whether it's true or false i want to put that on the shelf uh because we just don't, we don't know the final answer to that. So it seems that you, when you approach these women who have a real life crisis and then you give them a hypothesis which is so lacking in evidence but which has such potentially disastrous emotional connotations for them, I find that a little disturbing. I also find that, to be on my soapbox for a moment, that, you know, 60 year old men talking about children being, or, or young people being forced to have sex with extraterrestrials or being forced to have sex with other people, uh, it all starts to sound rather creepy to me. And that's the kind of thing, all right, if it's true and you have evidence for it, we can certainly talk about it and put it on the table, and we need to talk about it. But as long as the evidence is shadowy, as it is in the UFO mystery, uh, maybe we shouldn't be so bold in our proclamations about the truth of it. Yeah. Because um, it does sound creepy sometimes, uh, a lot of the time. As if we're so concerned about, you know, our sexuality, that we're we're worried that aliens are going to come in in the middle of the night, and I think I say in the book, and stick things in our in our yahoos, and <laughs> and do something to us. It's a philosophy, and approach that limits human capability. It, it makes humans victims in the story. And uh, if there's one part of the UFO story that I don't like, it's the part where humans are victims. Uh, that's a disturbing story, and I'm not sure we have evidence for that. Yeah. I'm not sure we are the victims in this tale just yet.
0: And then to sort of move into the uh, the next sort of part of the book, I guess you could say, and this is the contactee movement and and sort of – Going from, going from the nuts and bolts folks to the lunatic fringe, if you will. And I, I, I hasten to use that expression, but it's the easiest way to, to clarify between the two groups. So uh, forgive me to all the lunatics listening. And I guess uh, the question I first wanted to ask is because you really describe in, in great detail and really well in the book sort of the spectrum of contactees from people who are abducted and just sort of get a message to your classic contactees who you know are out spreading the message to then it gets into some serious heady stuff. Um, with cults and, and serious groups and, and that kind of thing, just as a sort of leaping off point, I guess the question to start out would be, what makes a contactee go from a one-person experiencer to uh, a cult leader? How does this, how does this happen?
1: Well, that's a, that. That is a great mystery. Um, I mean, what turns a, a contactee, a religious, devout religious believer, into uh, the leader of a, even if we don't want to call them cults? uh but in the in into a leader of a religious culture a religious community what what you know what makes the distinction and that's 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 very complicated I, it, it has a lot to do with of course um, the individual person involved how persuasive they can be um, how charismatic they are uh, how intent they are on spreading their message it also has a lot to do with uh, of course the people that they encounter uh the people that, that come within their circle And then it has a lot to do with uh, the culture as a whole. Um, I mean, very often these uh, close knit religious communities, um, cults, are serving some need in the community, at least a need that a minority has. And um, if if the right person arrives at the right time, um, you know, John the Baptist wandering in the wilderness becomes Jesus with, you know, a whole group of followers behind him. And what makes that distinction? How does one go from being a contactee to a cult leader that's It's hard to say um, for me though however, one of the things that um, <laughs> one of the things that that I like to note um is that it's 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 very important that the world of ufology maintain uh, a sense of humor yeah that uh we Take all of this uh, as serious as serious as it needs to be taken, when it needs to be taken that way. But that we also are willing to uh, to notice and appreciate the absurdity of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, that that people who are making claims about UFOs and extraterrestrials are making claims that the majority of people uh, are going to, to find a little bit odd. Uh, and these beliefs, UFO beliefs, have been expressed in a lot of odd ways. So, I mean, one of the things, then, that I find interesting about the distinction between someone like uh, Truman Bithurum, uh who was an early or mid-1950s contactee, um, and, say, someone like um, uh, Rael of the Raelians, hmm. is uh, for all you could say about Truman uh, – Truman was a little wacky uh and a little funny and I like to give people enough credit to think that he was a little wacky and a little funny not just because uh he wasn't very bright or he wasn't very sophisticated but because he knew he was a little a little odd and a little funny uh, yeah uh I think he appreciated the jokes um the, this, the, the, you know, you know, the, the Admiral Scow spacecraft coming down and, and, uh, the Captain Aura Rames wearing a cute miniskirt and a, and a fashionable beret. Um was he sincere when he was talking about that? I assume he probably was. Did he also notice that that was a little strange? Surely he did. And that ability to laugh, um I think is is one of the things that allows human beings to step back and to keep from crossing that line to the point of utmost seriousness so that you end up uh, be- with a belief structure that is so firm and so fixed uh, and that one is so sincere about it that you couldn't laugh and you couldn't question it. And down that road leads danger, I think. Yeah. It leads to uh, a kind of religious belief. That uh, stifles creativity and stifles the human spirit and gets us into, you know, into acts of terrorism and acts of war and all those, all those kinds of things. Yeah. So I, I think it's critical, uh, and I think that's one of the distinctions is um, the ability to take some of this with a grain of salt. And there's a long tradition of that within ufology. I mean, uh, think of uh, you know, Gray Barker is one of my personal heroes of the whole story. You know, he puts a fishbowl on his head. He's a—it's a funny thing. He goes on TV, you know, wearing a space helmet. Uh, he's a funny guy. Does he bring lots of serious insight into the phenomena? I think he—I think he does. But he does it in such a way that we—we—we we, we know that he's a—he chi- was a child at heart. Yeah. And there's part of the UFO phenomenon that speaks to that—the child in us. And maybe that's just because I was a child when I first encountered these ideas but there's something exciting and thrilling about the idea of uh, green-skinned Martians and tiny little spacecraft coming down to planet Earth. Yeah. And uh whether they bring good tidings or mysteries, that's a, that's an ex- exciting, life-affirming image. When you leave that humor and childishness completely out of the picture, you end up with uh, aliens as sexual predators and uh you know, extraterrestrials bent on the destruction of humankind and sinister plots. And uh, while, to be honest, I have no belief in either little green Martians coming down and landing in my lawn and no personal belief in intergalactic governmental conspiracies, as an outsider to both of those worlds, I find one more appealing than the other, if that makes any sense.
0: No, that makes perfect sense. I can see why a, a sinister government conspiracy <laughs> or intergalactic conspiracy would be less, less appealing. Now, all these different groups, I guess the cynical point of view of a lot of people is um, that they're hoaxers or they're in it for the money, and a lot of people seem to think that that might be a motivating factor. In the vast array of groups and everything like that, how many would you say were genuinely – uh, I guess you could say believers, and how many do you think were uh hoaxers or just charismatic people that were duping people into into joining along in their little gang
1: you know that that is another one of the mysteries that makes this feel so fascinating to me i have a, a a heck of a time telling the difference between uh the hoaxers and true believers, yeah, and i think I think a lot of people do i think that's one of the problems inherent in the field. So I don't know that I would, that I would even make the dichotomy like that to say that either people are true believers or they're hoaxers. I get the feeling that there are some people who are true believers who are led to fabricating evidence, we might say, in order to help their cause, uh, without any malicious intent. I mean, were the people in the middle ages who advertised that their church had a splinter of the cross of Jesus were they hucksters out to make a buck, or did they authentically believe in that? Somewhere in the middle, I would imagine. Right? I, I mean, surely, religious belief being what it was in the Middle Ages, pure hucksterism wasn't as um, prevalent as it might be today. People actually believed in things. Almost everybody believed in God. So to claim you had a splinter of the cross of Christ was a significant claim for practically everyone. Was there a little voice in the back of someone's head saying, but, you know, if we had all the splinters of the cross of Christ that are scattered around Europe, we would be able to build, uh, a, you know, the Tower of Babel because there are so many of them? Sure, I think it was there. And, I mean, I don't want to accuse anyone in particular of, of uh, forgery, but I have to think that, um, especially in the realm of the contactees, where you have some of these people who have such strong... Uh, personal religious beliefs about the message the extraterrestrials are bringing, and then when asked to give proof for that, maybe it's not too too, uh, incredible to think that they might be able to generate photographs as proof for their spiritual message and not feel that they're doing anything wrong about it. So uh I like to see the, the good in uh the good in even hoaxers. Okay. I <laughs> I don't know if that if that's a, a satisfactory answer or if it makes you happy or not, but I think I think that's right that in um, hoaxing is a reputable art uh <laughs> in in the world of religion. And uh, that's just the way it is. You know, yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want want you don't wanna be found out, but
0: everybody does it. So you think it's more of uh the hoaxing is is to go along to reinforce the belief structures, not so much like uh, that they're just sitting there one day and they're like, you know, I'm kind of running out of money here. Maybe I should start my own little group. Say that I got a, say that I got contacted by an ET or something like that. So, so what you're saying is it's more like if there's hoaxing going on, it's it's to reinforce the belief structure, not as the hoax is to generate the belief structure.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think there are some people that have made claims about. There are normal experiences that are purely hoaxers, and they're in it for the money. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I'm not. I don't want to make a blanket statement that everybody is sincere. There are lots of people who are who are in it for the money. Uh, there are also people who are in it for the laugh. I mean, it's kind of funny to to, to throw a pie plate in the air and take a picture and see it um, show up on the internet yeah. or uh, in a newspaper. But I think, the, in those instances when we're dealing with People with long-term kind of connections to the movement,
2: mm-hmm. I
1: find it harder there to think that they are just hoaxing. There are more profitable ways to make a living than uh, chasing flying saucers or trying to sell books about flying saucers. Trust me on this one. Yeah. There are many more profitable ways to make a living yeah. than doing that. That's one of the mysteries of human nature, I, I suppose. that I, you have to decide those things on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. If you pressed me over a beer, not in this context, but over a beer, I would tell you who I think the hoaxers are. But I, I don't necessarily mean that as an insult to them. It's fine, you know, that they were hoaxing. That's that's part of the game. And if the UFO community is smart enough to figure them out, that's fine, too. If not, they contribute something to the mythology.
0: Exactly, yeah. It's uh, the UFO people's responsibility to weed out that sort of thing. Sure. The contactee movement really sort of exploded in like the 50s, 60s uh, maybe a little off on the timeline but, but the, just the question I have is why why does that movement seem to have sort of fizzled out in the last like 10, 15, 20 years we really don't see the contactees is sort of like a nostalgia thing now more than a, a viable element in ufology. Why do you think that is? Well
1: that's a good question. I'm not sure I have um, an adequate answer for you but part of of it, I suppose, is that the 1950s and 60s were, with the Cold War being so important in the lives of people, the idea of extraterrestrial saviors could could be, uh, you know, a very a lot more persuasive than it might be now. But I would I would go on to say that I I guess I would challenge some of the assumption that it that it's the contactee movement has you know is gone away for whatever reason. Contactees aren't receiving the publicity; they aren't. Uh, writing the books and setting the public agenda anymore. And part of that is just, uh, I think, a quirk of history that because of some of the things that happened and some of the emphasis that was placed in the 90s primarily on Roswell and on the abduction phenomena, that emphasis, the spotlight finally moved away from them. But I've met lots of people who've had contacts with extraterrestrials and have messages from extraterrestrials they just aren't getting the media attention that they were getting in the 1950s and 60s. And um, I think the story is largely related to that, uh, you know, that the big movement in the 1990s with Roswell and the abduction phenomenon and uh, uh, the sci-fi channel documentaries and uh, um, the Discovery Channel and all of this emphasis placed by those Forces placed on uh, the more nuts and bolts side of the picture. Maybe that story was just more compelling for a while. Yeah. I would think, though, and I, uh, my guess is that, that the pure contactees uh, from the 1950s aren't gone forever and that there will be, uh, from what I've seen sort of on the undercurrents of ufology, is there an awful lot of people who may not have uh, names that are recognized within the uh, UFO community but there are an awful lot of people who I would describe as contactees out there. Yeah, I'm not sure they found their they found the voice right now. Yeah, but uh, I anticipate they just might. It seems that with the the interesting and sometimes terrifying set of circumstances that have come upon the world in the last ten years, it seems that things might be ripe again for uh, voices crying in the wilderness. That you know we need to straighten up and uh, and love one another or the world, is going to come to a rather tragic end. We might see more of that in coming days.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to see what, what develops in that, on that front. One of the uh, interesting points you make when you're talking about the different groups uh, that have sort of a UFO context to them as far as religious groups, you talk about Scientology being different from the rest of the UFO groups in that they want to keep their UFO influence uh, secret. They they really aren't happy that, that the big UFO elements to Scientology sort of gotten out I wanted to ask you just to elaborate a little bit on that why you think they want to maintain the UFO influence as a secret within their group uh when it seems like all the other groups sort of use that as the main thrust of their whole movement.
1: Well, I I suspect that you know in in the in the end we might look back and say it's it's a, a cunning move on the part of Scientology that if their goal was to get their message out and to attract lots of people um to accept their faith, then what they've done by keeping it quiet has is, is, is been a good thing. I mean, um, if, your, if your goal is to spread the truth so that everybody hears your message, that's one thing. If your goal is to induct people into your religious movement and make devoted followers out of them, then it makes an awful lot of sense to keep these things secret. The average person on the street who hears the story of... Zenu and the body thetans and the you know the the entire uh, intergalactic background to scientology is is going to just reject it outright upon hearing that, mm-hmm. however, if you have someone who has already been sort of uh, brought into the movement through less outrageous claims. And they 've already invested in it both their time and their finances and their emotions, then they might be far more likely to accept a rather strange claim yeah I mean it seems to be working. Uh, they may not be the largest religious community in the world, but they are certainly uh, very uh, have very dedicated members who, and very powerful members and uh, have a lot of influence in in culture yeah, so um, I suspect That's what's going on. It also, of course, plays into a theme that's common in many religions, dating back to you know the the old uh, Greco-Roman mystery cults. Um, And there's something unique about having a a mystery revealed to you only after you've reached a certain level of experience and devotion. Mm -hmm. It seems to make the message more important if you have to work to get it or pay to get it. Yeah. Then you're just giving it away, and I think by making people work and pay for it, Scientology is uh, is, is, is quite successful. It's out now, though. I don't know what tactic they're going to be, uh, you know, uh, raising in the future. I know that when I was um, researching the book, I, I would, would always find what what were supposedly handwritten notes uh, by L. Ron Hubbard about some of the the, the doctrines of um, Scientology and i would find those on on the net and then within 24 36 hours they'd be gone oh wow. taken off taken off the net uh and then they'd come back again at a different site mm-hmm. and so i i get the feeling that they are actively policing the information even though i think south park uh and other uh, venues have uh, shared the idea with with the world uh, i think they're still actively trying to keep it you know under wraps um it was kind of interesting to, to keep tracking down the documents. There are obviously some people who want the message to get out, probably people who are former members or who are very critical of the movement.
0: Yeah, because I just saw yesterday or a few days ago some new article about Tom Cruise building a bunker to uh, protect from alien attacks or something like that. So it sounds like there's this ongoing thing with uh, Scientology now where the UFO element's really getting exposed.
1: Right, and I expect that will that will continue. Whether or not that's going to hurt them or help them, I don't know. I don't think the UFO element is as um, as persuasive in popular culture now as it might have been 50 years ago, or even 20 years ago. Um, in other words, I don't know that it's as appealing. At least that's what my editor tells me. That people aren't you know aren't buying the books like they were back in the in the uh, early to mid 90s. Yeah. That there's a drop off in the sales of UFO books. So does this mean that you, that uh, Scientology pick a, picked, a, you know, a bad time to reveal their extraterrestrial heritage? I don't know. We'll we'll wait and see. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah.
0: Is there any sort of theme to all these groups in the sense of their evolution? Do they follow any sort of pattern as far as, you know, it starts out, it gets bigger, and then all of a sudden people sort of die out when, when uh, you know, prophecies aren't fulfilled? Or the leader does something where they become not as believed in as much anymore?
1: Yeah, you I think you're absolutely right there that uh you, I mean we we do see a pattern uh in many of these UFO religious movements in which um they depend very much on the persuasiveness and the charisma of their founding member and when their founding me- member either uh you know ends up doing something wrong or um uh dies then it's often hard for the group to main- maintain itself. One Good example of the importance of charisma, I think, is um, the Unarians in, uh, out in uh, San Diego. Mm-hmm. In that, when they were first founded, they grew rather rather slowly. It wasn't until I'm drawing a blank on the uh, on the name, I'm afraid, but it wasn't until the spouse of their founder to prominence in the movement that they began to take off and, and gather a great deal of steam simply because she was quite charismatic. Yeah. Upon her death, however, the, the group split into factions and uh, has continued to to drop off in size. So you can really track it with that. Here you have a, a movement starts off on a shaky foundation. They find a charismatic leader, and they grow rather quickly, and then when the leader dies, Things drop off it it was also it also hurt them very much, I think that they made predictions about extraterrestrial craft landing on the earth uh, in the later part of the twentieth century. obviously I mean that didn't happen, and their explanation that they didn't come because we humans aren't yet ready uh, i don't think was a satisfactory explanation to a lot of people yeah. and so there you have the the death of a leader combined with a failed prophecy, and you see these things begin to dwindle away. I don't think it has to be like that, though. And there are one of the problems now is that it's just too soon, even though it's been 50 years, 60 years since uh, the modern flying saucer phenomenon began. It's still too soon to see whether or not any of these movements are going to, you know, to to really have a lasting influence and be around for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I think one of one of the, uh, if not the earliest, uh, probably the earliest religion to have clear Connections with the idea of extraterrestrial life um, would be the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and there you see uh, a movement that's began with a with a very charismatic leader. The leader died; they faced many crises, but as I understand it now. They're one of the fastest-growing sects in America today. So there you clearly see a group that's managed to to keep on going. Um, though I have to say they are doing an even better job than Scientology, I suppose, of keeping the uh, extraterrestrial elements of their religion under wraps. That, you know, They don't present that in a, in a public forum very much at all. Yeah. So that uh, here you have what I would classify as a UFO religion, but uh, everybody within that movement, I think, would deny my claim that, that is, that's what they are. Okay. But they're doing well.
0: Yeah. Just to sort of leap to the third part of the book. With the ancient astronauts and that sort of discussion. I guess the first thing I want to ask you about is you point out a really interesting paradox that uh, exists in the ancient astronaut theory, and that is respecting the ancient culture and saying, you know, we have to believe their myths and legends and that they were true and that we have to, you know, take what they write as face value versus the idea that they would have needed help, that they were a primitive people who needed outside help to achieve, you know, their great monuments and things like that. Talk a little bit about that sort of paradox that exists in the ancient astronaut school of thought.
1: Sure. I think basic to the claim of the ancient astronaut theory, which is that the origins of human culture and the ancient monuments and ancient civilizations are the result of uh, extraterrestrials visiting the Earth and assisting uh, with the uh, foundation of society and the foundation of culture. Coupled with the belief, that's coupled with the belief that the truths of this extraterrestrial encounter are found within the sacred doctrines, the sacred uh, writings and um, and mythologies of ancient peoples. So that when the Hebrew Bible talks about uh, the Nephilim, the giants in the earth who are the descendants of the fallen angels or sons of God who have Cohabited with uh, human women. Uh, What's really being said there, according to the ancient astronaut hypothesis, is that these sons of God were really astronauts from another world who came here and produced children with Earth women, and uh, they were the giants, famous, influential people of ancient days. And so, what's the, the, the interesting paradox that you bring out there is that the ancient astronaut theory. Depends on the assumption that the ancient people are both uh, more backwards than uh, mainstream history tells us, and also that they are uh, more advanced than mainstream history yeah. tells us. They are more advanced because while we regard their ancient writings as kind of interesting mythology and fairy tales, they are really recording historical facts and scientific truths, some of which are even beyond modern humanity at this point in our development uh on the other hand the ancient astronaut theory says that the ancient peoples were far more primitive than mainstream history tells us because they could not have been responsible for the monuments uh like the great pyramid uh that they could not have been responsible for even knowing the things that that, that are revealed in the, in their scriptures and in their writings that this information that civilization itself could not have come from primitive humans, it had to come from somewhere else and if if you're not if you are a nuts and bolts person who doesn't believe in uh gods and angels so much, then you could posit that uh, extraterrestrials came down and brought those things to the to the world and were mistaken uh, for gods so I find that interesting that um the ancient astronaut movement sort of um gives credit to the ancients by saying they were really. Quite brilliant and recorded the truth of extraterrestrial visits, uh, and at the same time, they were so primitive that they couldn't have done, couldn't have possibly built the things and achieved the things that uh, history tells us were achieved by them. I don't know what that dichotomy is about, except it's clearly an approach to this, to the strangeness that one encounters when one encounters an ancient culture. I mean there's something akin to encountering an extraterrestrial when uh you visit ancient monuments from a people about whom we know v- very little. Yeah. Uh, why did they build a Stonehenge? What could their purpose have possibly been? Why did they build the Great Pyramid? What possible purpose could this have? This it seems by our standards a waste of uh manpower, a waste of resources with their limited technology for them to have done this? what What's the mystery of their life, their form of life, that would explain this? And there's something about it that, that's so far away from who we are that it seems sometimes easier to say it's alien than it's just another form of being human. Yeah. that uh, That humans can be this complex, even even without the technology, that there's something basically complex about Homo sapiens, even in their earliest historical incarnations. And um, so both facets of the ancient astronaut hypothesis, these people were brilliant, and these people were so backwards they couldn't have built the things we see that that they built. Both of those are responses to this alienness of uh, different people from so very long ago.
0: And you see that almost in the modern times, too, because uh, a lot of things that are on the peripheral of the UFO phenomenon, like cattle mutilation and crop circles, those things really quickly get lumped in with UFOs, because UFOs seems to be like the catch-all for anything that's strange.
1: Exactly. In, in that sense, um, you know, flying saucers, um it's an archaic term, but I I prefer it, I think. You know, flying saucers um, are the, you know, the mystical metaphor of uh Of the 20th century, the late 20th century, Mm -hmm. and so that much of our mysteries get thrown into that into that pot. Uh, Charles Fort wouldn't have done that because I mean, and and Fort, even though he has some sort of extraterrestrial hypotheses here and there, Fort kind of relishes the um, the diversity of the mystery. Yeah, and he had no overarching schema which he could, which everything would be lumped under for him. And but I think we'd have that now. And I think that's the extraterrestrial hypothesis. That everything from uh Bigfoot
0: uh to cattle mutilations has an extraterrestrial explanation. Yeah, exactly. From a religious perspective, do you think that um that it's the sort of situation where with the influx of science and the sort of science versus religion thing that UFOs takes, like, uh, the form of science, in a way, as a way to counteract the God situation. You know what I mean? Where in the sense that, like, there's lights in the sky, maybe a long time ago, they would have said, you know, that's a sign from God. But now there's sort of an anti-Godness going on in society in the form of how science is sort of its own sort of religion. Um, and that ufology is a way to sort of add on to that and be the, the counterbalance to the God theory. Do you follow what I'm trying
1: to say? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, um, the psychologist Carl Jung made this, this kind of assessment uh, 50 years ago when he when he said that uh, you know UFOs are are uh, modern day scientific angels. That's 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 the role they're playing. I mean, regardless of what they are, uh, are they extraterrestrials? Are they uh, mystical beings from another dimension? Are they simply figments of mass psychosis? Who knows? Um, but Jung said. Whatever they are, the role they play in our society is akin to the role of angels and spiritual beings and gods, but they're scientific angels. They are advanced civilizations. They're not deities from heaven. They are, uh, in the final analysis, they're beings like us, flesh and blood, whatever color that might be. So you're exactly right. They play the role of gods and and deities, uh, but without the uh, supernatural element that's, that's necessary for those things. So as our world becomes uh, more and more secular. So I, I su- suppose it will continue to have the kind of religious yearnings and the need for meaning and understanding that humans always have had. But as we become more secular in our understanding of the cosmos, it only makes sense that we would find our gods in, in metal ships rather than uh, in
0: flaming chariots. And uh, that's one of the things you also sort of point out in the paradox of ufology is the belief in science that even though UFOs don't fit into the scientific world, the nuts and bolts ufologists have sort of like a diehard belief in science that that's the way to answer the question. Now, how science sort of has become its own religion in a sense, kind of how I alluded to earlier. And there's this sort of paradox in ufology with this with this hardcore belief in science and using science to prove ufology, and that science is, you know is the reasoning behind UFOs versus the fact that science doesn't really want anything to do with UFOs and ufology is kind of ignored by science. If the theories behind the nuts and bolts ufologists as far as the extraterrestrial hypothesis go, they're going to have to change science fundamentally if it's proven that, you know, there's ETs flying around in metal ships. So there's sort of a paradox there of belief in science versus trying to change science. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And and this is a struggle that any, you know, outsider group within the scientific establishment faces. They they're they're trying to bring about, hoping to bring about what the philosopher Thomas Kuhn uh, called and the term's been overused, but what he called a a paradigm shift. They're trying to shift science from viewing things this way so that science views things another way. Um, still relying on the empirical evidences of science. And, um, I mean, I mean, finally, though, in, in my perspective, I have to, I have to say, I, I continually see the science of ufology coming up short. Mm-hmm. That the science just isn't there. Will it be there? Perhaps. I don't think that the scientific establishment is turning its back on good, solid evidence. At this point, I don't think there is good, solid evidence. At this point, that doesn't mean I don't think good, solid evidence might might uh, be discovered if if we keep on looking for it. But it's not there yet. But it puts uh, nuts and bolts ufology in a bind. How can they remain um, convinced that there is only, that the explanation for this is scientific when science itself refuses to accept their version of of, uh, of, of the facts? and uh, i'm afraid it's it's disintegrated into name calling on both sides a lot of the time yeah and that uh, ufologists you know claim that mainstream science is uh just refusing to look at the evidence and uh, mainstream science calls ufologists uh, you know all kinds of uh, of bad names and uh, in the realm of science as it should be there's no reason that ufology shouldn't go on and continue researching this problem in scientific terms Or they shouldn't expect the scientific community to uh to accept all of their conclusions just yet yeah. because I don't think there's enough evidence just yet. There's a friendlier way to go about this. But I, and I think probably the conflict says um, says a lot about how uh, uneasy the relationship will be, however, um, because despite the fact that ufology wants to be scientific, as long as it places such uh, an incredible amount of weight on eyewitness testimonies, uh, I think it will continue to be ignored by, by mainstream science. That uh, there's just, you know, eyewitness testimony just isn't, just isn't going to be the thing that wins the case for ufology. Yeah. They're going to have to have nuts and bolts. Sooner or later, there's going to have to be something. Like exactly in the Bigfoot community, which I'm, I'm researching at the moment, there's uh, you know, this constant debate about uh, what do you do? Do we do we need a body or not? Yes, <laughs> you need a body, or you need part of a body, or you're never going to have proof because in the final analysis, the difference between the panda, the giant panda, which was thought to be uh, you know a, a mythical creature for many years, the difference between that and a Sasquatch is that we have specimens of one and not the other. And the eyewitness testimony will never tip the scales until you have that hard evidence. Yeah. That's one of the things I I find so compelling about the contactee movement and the, the lunatic fringe is that, um, okay, maybe this is nuts and bolts, and maybe this is a physical thing that we're talking about here. Maybe we can achieve awareness of extraterrestrials through scientific research. But the quest to do so might make us miss something else that's important in the story. We might miss the spiritual truths in our quest for the factual truth. Yeah. We might miss something. Nuts and that's Bolts ufology finds itself in the middle between the, the lunatic fringe and the mainstream scientists and uh, being pulled in both directions. And um, I don't know. We'll see how so far it tends to still want to, you know, put its uh, fortunes with uh, mainstream science rather than the little tick fringe but we'll see if that if that continues
0: yeah and then one of the big points you make in the book is that you see fear as a driving force behind ufology fear of all sorts of things fear of the government fear of uh, the unknown fear of ourselves talk a little bit about fear as the driving force behind ufology because I, I found that to be one of the big themes of the book
1: you can go back as far as the, you know as far as the 1950s in which uh, and one of the things I say is that I, I don't think a lot of the, um, of the early contactee movement, the early sightings were fear-driven in, in, quite, in quite the way uh, they might become later. Uh, but we certainly have in the 1950s and, and 60s these uh, Hollywood movies which use uh, flying saucers to represent our fear of, I suppose, of, uh, of uh, the Soviet Union and uh, our fears of uh, you know, forces beyond our control at the heart of the Cold War. But it didn't end there. It didn't end with uh, the end of the Cold War. And just as, as I said a few minutes ago, I believe many of our classical religious hopes and, and intuitions are being placed on the backs of, you know, lights in the night sky. I think also a lot of basic human fears have become... Uh, substantiated in the form of uh, of extraterrestrials and and flying saucers in in simple ways like um you know uh walking in the woods at night that's that's a it's natural for human beings to be a little bit scared of that kind of situation uh something about our biology i suspect that, that heightens our awareness pumps a little adrenaline in our system when we find ourselves uh in uh in a dark forest, far away from other people, in this day and age, those kinds of fears are instantiated in the forms of uh, seeing flying saucers and uh, experiencing extraterrestrial phenomena. But it goes deeper than that basic, you know, that that kind of basic human fear. I also think, you know, that ufology sometimes begins to take on our fear of uh, just our, in general, our fear of the other. It's not an accident. I I think that uh, we we call these creatures in spacecraft aliens. Yeah. Just as we call uh, you know the the influx of people from other countries that so many people in our culture today are afraid of aliens. I mean, it's it's this basic fear of otherness of people and things that are different from us, and and it can take on terrifying forms. So that our fear of strangeness symbolically is uh, incarnated in the form of uh, creatures from outer space, a fear of our government, which we probably have a good reason to be afraid of, fear of our government takes on the form of fear of their relationship with extraterrestrials, fear of things we don't understand, fear of the mysteries of life takes on a form of fear of extraterrestrial entities, yeah. fear of sexual abuse, fear of life's tragedies. Is displayed in the abductee movement. Now, that's not to say that all of these movements are – and all of these expressions of ufology are nothing more than reflections of our human fears. I'm not making a, a psychological argument for to try to explain these things away. I'm just saying that there's, these are the reasons that these UFO experiences resonate with us in such a way that, as they do they've taken we're no longer afraid of the devil many people aren't anyways mm-hmm. what are we afraid of we're afraid of uh beings from another world yeah we're afraid of that uh, you know that light in the sky there's some there's some bad things about that i mean i think it's bad when uh, we become so frozen by our fear as i as i criticize the pea movement of encouraging us to be so frozen by our fear that we can't do anything about the problems that we face. But it's also good. That the the sense of uh, awe, the sense of um what um the philosopher Rudolf Otto used to call holy terror. Yeah. The sense of holy terror. <laughs> in a basic human sense, I I suppose. And uh extraterrestrials and flying saucers make an easy place for us to, to place those fears. Yeah. We should be careful though, because I mean if if we if we do that too readily we may miss out on what's really there we may only see the thing that we are afraid of just like if we only you know see um the invading armada of hispanic speaking people as something to be afraid of we might miss the wonderful kind people that are moving in down the street from us
0: yeah yeah exactly as a student of religion what do you make of um some of the mainstream religion's takes on the UFO phenomenon. I know the the Catholic religion has they've got the observatory and a lot of people in the UFO world sort of want to ascribe uh, a UFO-related element to the the Vatican observatory. And I know that uh, I don't know how recently it was, but in the last like two or three years they they came out with some kind of statement that was like UFOs and ETs would not change uh, the perspective of the church or something like that. Um, So what's your take on uh, mainstream religion acknowledging the UFO phenomenon and their their perspective on it?
1: Well, I think, I mean, a few years ago when uh, the, a meteorite was found with what might be regarded as evidence of, of life having existed on Mars at one point, the press immediately wanted to talk to church leaders about you know, what are the implications of this for your faith? Does this, doesn't this challenge your faith? I've never really understood that argument. And I, having talked with lots of, uh, Christian people and religious people about the subject, I don't find that, that you know, it, it's not something that is a, a direct threat or challenge to most people's, uh, core Christian values. Um, what I do see though is this, particularly among more evangelical Christian churches, there is a growing or continuing distrust of, uh, UFO religious movements and UFO beliefs as, as they all, they lump that together with, uh, you know, the New Age phenomena and they regard it as, uh, satanic forces, idolatry, mm-hmm. and they would, uh, say that anyone who claims to have seen these, had these kinds of experiences was really being deceived by the devil or something like that. And there you, it's just sort of this, um, I guess it's nothing more than petty feuding between, you know, religious sects. It's uh, yeah. well, your your God is really the devil, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I think what's most interesting is not is what um, what I've encountered among many mainstream Christian believers, and that is I've met a lot of people who, you know, go to church on Sunday, but they they've seen those lights or uh, they've had the abduction experience. And I don't see a lot of people weaving those things together too clearly at this point. But I suspect it's going to happen. I hope it happens because um, uh, I like um, syncretism when it comes to religion. I like it when things get all bl- gets all blended up together. I, th- I find that extremely interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's I think it's very healthy for a society. So I think that's beginning to happen is that uh, people will go to church on Sunday and on uh, Saturday nights they'll go to a meeting of uh, their local UFO society and don't really see any discrepancy between those things. And I think that's where the future is in terms of extraterrestrials and and religion. Official religion will continue to uh frown on UFO cults. Evangelicals will continue to frown on the UFO movement in general but the average uh, American Joe six-pack is probably going to find some way to handle both and believe in both.
0: Yeah. The sort of conclusion in the book is about new gods and how the UFOs and ETs are sort of like the new gods, but they end up being just like the old gods. Um, I guess just talk a little bit about that religious aspect to the ET UFO phenomenon.
1: Sure, yeah. At the end of the book, I um, I tried to express sort of my own – some of my own – Feelings about the whole thing. I've done that throughout to some extent, but just wanted to try to bring it all together in a few pages. And one of the things that, that strikes me as most important is that if we, if we begin to think about the UFO phenomena as a, as a religious movement, you see there's a contrast between the gods of ufology and the gods of traditional religion. And I find this most in, in, in the contactees of the 1950s. Uh, if I have, if I had to find a, pick out a group uh, in the UFO community that I'm most enthralled with and most, most interested in it would be georgia Adamski and um and all of those who came after him mm-hmm. and one of the things i found I find most refreshing and intriguing about them is is that their gods in the sense well, lower case G. their gods uh that their angels are visitors uh, from Venus visitors from the planet Clarion. Uh, and they are very much like us. they dress in fashionable clothes they uh use in in terms of uh visitors from the planet clarion they they speak in the uh, human slang right out of the nineteen fifties they uh they make mistakes they um have human emotions yeah. they dance they go to cocktail parties they're very much like us and yet they're more than we are because they have achieved both technological advance advancement and uh, ethical spiritual advancement they've somehow they've managed to make uh themselves better in conjunction with making their technology better and, and that to me uh i I call that image the kind of the image of the new gods mm-hmm. that for a short while there there was a there were a group of people uh who were saying, "Look, we can make ourselves better um and as we make our technology better so that we can we can make the world better, yeah, and they really believed that, and because these gods were in strictly human form, they lacked uh all the things that gods are supposed to have, like omniscience and omnipotence
2: mm-hmm.
1: that um they couldn't lay down, you know, the the answer to everything because even the gods of Adamski didn't have the answer to everything. Even they faced the mystery of reality, and um, something of a romantic, I suppose. I I find all that very compelling, and so I suggest that uh, for a moment there, there was a chance that these new gods uh, were were being born. I don't think it lasted though, because uh, the the new gods. Soon, in in culture, took on the qualities of the old gods, so that you have, in, say, um, the movement uh, in Georgia, known as the um, the, the Yamasee Indians, who are have claim extraterrestrial source as their as their source for being on this earth. You have what's to me a very frightening image of extraterrestrials as uh, kind of a predator species, uh, destroying power, which lays down very strict laws for behavior, and who have achieved a kind of uh, perfectness of power and morality that we humans would never achieve. So the new gods have just become the old gods all over again in that sense, that um, the we no longer, I guess, I guess it is that we no longer believe that we can improve our ethics as we improve our technology, and together make something incredible happen. I think now we are um, perhaps so frightened of our technology, and so down and so negative about human potential that we've gone back, and, and in ufology and in the religious circles within ufology, gone back to looking for the. Uh, for the old omniscient, uh omnipowerful god, omnipotent god of uh of the past. We've given up the new gods of Adamski and substituted them with the uh with the old gods uh from outer space instead. But I I like the old days, um, in that sense. I, I wish we could have those new gods back again. Uh, I wish we could uh, find a way in our society to believe in human progress that is moral as well as technological, and not only believe in it, but make it happen. Yeah. That would be a wonderful thing.
0: And then uh, the only like last question I have for you is sort of a big-picture thing with ufology and just what your thoughts are on the landscape of modern ufology, and especially with regards to this exopolitical sort of aspect. You didn't really mention the exopolitics in the book, but that's sort of like the new – the big new movement it's not so much a religion in a sense but uh its own little culture uh pushing like political activism and that kind of thing and they're at odds with the with the nuts and bolts guys they're they're kind of almost they're kind of almost stepping into the realm of uh of the antithesis to the nuts and bolts people now as as like we said the contact ease that doesn't seem to be happening as much anymore now there's this exo politics that's butting up against ufology but that's more of a, a belief structure in activism that kind of thing versus science. Um do you have any thoughts on that that whole thing and have you looked at it at all?
1: Well, I have looked at it and um I imagine that I'm going to do more coverage of that in uh in the next edition, but um as it as it continues to grow and develop and to uh, probably take on more religious connotations here and there. Um but yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, and a lot of that rises, of course, out of the ancient astronaut theories and out of the contactee movements themselves. Mm -hmm. So that you have, um, um, you know, the idea of the of the Ashtar Command and um, this sort of interstellar government, which calls upon the individuals on the Earth to participate in certain ethical actions in order to bring about a better world so that we can be finally united uh with uh, with the federation so i don't know that it's all that new in that sense right because it's um it's rooted in those ideas of sacrifice and service to the planet to humanity to the larger picture which was part and parcel of what at least some of the old contactees had to say now i think it's all connected now, and it's been touched and transformed by conspiracy theorists, and a lot of the ideas that that one finds there. But well, you put those things together, the contactee movement, combined with uh, the conspiracy theorists, and you begin to get the foundations of, of the kind of thing that you're talking about. But I suspect it's going to continue to play out. I mean, this is how it happens in, in the early days of any not only of any religious movement, but of any cultural movement, and that you have in these early days, even sixty years after, you have you know battles between the groups. Will one finally you know win out as the voice of belief in extraterrestrials? Well, assuming that we don't have you know an extraterrestrial landing on the White House lawn so that all the all the questions are answered, uh yes, I think, assuming that doesn't happen, then yes, I think we'll continue to have uh, hopefully a very vibrant conversation between the different groups. I mean, it was three hundred years after uh the the birth of Christianity before the Christian Bible was codified and agreed upon. Those weren't three hundred peaceful years, those were three hundred years of uh you know, uh, inner battles and struggling with one another and arguing about what was important until finally there was, uh, some consensus that arose. And I suspect something like that is going to happen here. Of course, that's barring, as I said, uh, uh, UFOs on the White House lawn, which, uh, would probably put an end, maybe put an end to a lot of the fighting and, um, well, show us what's real. But yeah. no one's, no one, I don't think anymore is expecting that, which is kind of odd, I, I suppose, that, uh, you know in 1954 a lot of people were expecting it 50 years later i don't know that anyone wakes up thinking today might be the day when they make contact i mean everybody's had to sort of change their way of looking at it to account for the fact that 60 years have passed since we first got interested in this and uh the big moment hasn't yet arrived yeah maybe there is no big moment maybe there's only the small moments, the personal encounters, the ethics, the religion. Maybe that's what there will be. That, that finally became, of course, true of Christianity, too. It was only after that expectation of the second, com- of second coming of Christ began to waver after 300 years and there was no return. It was only then that a deeper, more spiritual element of Christianity began to prosper and bloom. Huh.
0: So you think that that maybe the spiritual element of ufology will will take hold more as time goes by and we, we never get any solid answers and we really don't get the literal nuts and bolts, then maybe more of a spiritual element will come off from it.
1: If we don't get the nuts and bolts,
0: uh sooner or later,
1: I mean I can't think of any other way. Yeah. I, I think beliefs in ex belief in extraterrestrials will continue. But if we don't get the evidence, convincing evidence, then um People will continue to believe. Uh, they'll just find different ways to talk about it.
0: Huh. All right. So, what's coming up next for you? Uh, what's what's on the horizon for Greg Reese? You said you were doing some Bigfoot research, so maybe that might be it. But uh, you'll l- let us know what's going on for you uh, coming up.
1: Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, right now I'm uh, working on uh, completing a book, which should be out uh, probably about this time next year. Tentatively titled uh, "Weird Science and Bizarre Beliefs." Um, and it will, uh, follow the pattern of, uh, UFO religion, and then I'm going to try once again to, uh, uh, be an observer of, um, people who hold beliefs that are different from mine and try to appreciate and, uh, respect them. But I'm looking at a, a broader spectrum this time. I'm looking at, um, the world of cryptozoology, a lot of emphasis on, uh, the Sasquatch mystery. I'm also looking at, um, Advanced technology, uh, amazing inventions. Looking at the the world uh, around um, the idea of uh, ancient technology as well as Tesla technology. And then the third section of the book, we'll be looking at uh, lost civilizations. Both I'm looking. I'll be talking a little about uh, Atlantis and the idea of the ancient uh, civilization, and also uh, uh, the Hollow Earth theory. Both uh, both the Hollow Earth theory and the Shaver mystery caverns under the ground theory. So I've had a lot of – done a lot of fun research, both reading and uh, meeting people, and out on a Bigfoot hunt already, and uh, it's been a lot of fun, and I think the book's going to be a great deal of fun too.
0: Awesome, awesome. And that's sometime uh, around this time next year, you say? Yes, I think so. All right. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. The book is UFO Religion Inside Flying Saucer Cults and Culture – and, uh, you, the website uforeligion.com. People can get it just about anywhere, I presume. I found it at my local Barnes and Noble, so it's got good distribution. Definitely worth picking up. Very fascinating look at all the different groups that have sort of sprung up over the years and, uh, staked their claim to the UFO situation and, and what happened with those groups, how they came about, what, you know, where they went and all that great stuff. It's a very thorough read and very well researched, so it was great to have them on the show and talk to him. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Greg. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big thanks to Greg Reese for coming on the show. You can find out more information on Greg and his book at www.uforeligion.com. Check it out. We're going to skip over BOA Audio listener feedback for one more week, and I guarantee, folks, it's coming back next week on the program. So if you want to get your emails in line to be a part of this exciting segment, here's how you do it. Simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button on the left-hand side of the screen. Either one of those methods puts your correspondence into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. Time now, of course, to thank the fantastic banalofamerica.com staff for your help and support with the audio series and the website. Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Jovi, and Tina Senna. Week in and week out, the BOA staff is producing tremendous reading material that you can find at beenallofamerica.com. Over the last couple of weeks, Leslie has been covering the Dennis Kucinich UFO story from a number of different angles. And this past week, Chiron posted a fantastic review of the new Alex Jones film, Endgame. So as you can see, there's tons of stuff to be found at beenallofamerica.com, aside from the podcast you're listening to right now. As we've been known to say here at the end of the program, if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com, you're only getting half the story. If you're a long-time BOA Audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series and the website, there's a way you can do that. Simply go to banalofamerica.com or the BOA Audio archive page, click the golden PayPal button, and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards helping keep the audio series and the website up and running, advertisement free, and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. So, go to BOA, click the PayPal button, and make a donation. It would be greatly appreciated. As we teased at the end of the program last week, I know some folks have a hard time making a donation for something that they're already getting for free, I think there's some kind of psychological issue there. I'm not sure what it is, but I can understand and identify with that sort of thing. So, as a result, BenAllOfAmerica.com is on the verge of rolling out a new line of merchandise. This isn't going to be the old-style BOA merchandise. We're going to go in a whole new direction here, folks, and you are going to flip your wig when you see this stuff. The project is already underway. I'm already looking over drafts for this new merchandise, and the feedback I've been getting from the staff of BOA is very promising. I think these are going to be a huge hit, and I'm looking forward to seeing the reaction from the BOA audio listeners when they see this new merchandise. The BOA line will be available soon, probably within the next couple of weeks, and when that rolls out, hopefully you'll pick up some merchandise and in turn, that'll throw a little change into our coffers here at America.com and will help keep the podcast series from being cost prohibitive. So stay tuned to America.com for the soon-to-be-unveiled VOA line of merchandise. Next week on the program, it is a very special edition of VOA Audio. It's a theme episode of sorts. It's the Mass UFO Show slash Mass Monster Mash special. What's that all about, my friends? What that's about is on-site interviews from the big esoteric double bill that I attended in early October. It's going to be featuring six great esoteric researchers talking about a variety of different subjects. Let me give you a rundown on who's going to be on the program next week and what they're going to be talking about. Lauren Coleman will be covering the Dover Demon Bridgewater Triangle and the Virginia Tech shootings. Chris Balzano, an up-and-coming researcher who I'm predicting will be one of the breakout stars in Esoterica in 2008, will be discussing his work exploring Massachusetts' paranormal folklore and phantom clowns. Don Keating will tell us about the White Bigfoot and the Ohio cryptozoology scene. Carl Feint will detail his work looking at USOs, unidentified submerged objects. Don Ecker will tell us about his research into Black Triangles and Shag Harbor and former BOA Audio guest Chris Stiles will give us an update on what he's been up to since his appearance last spring and his thoughts on being so closely associated with one specific UFO case, that being Shag Harbor. It's the closest you can get to being there as BOA Audio brings you this fantastic mix of esoteric audio taped on location at the Mass UFO Show slash Mass Monster Mash next week on BOA Audio Season 3. And on that note, there's not much left to say, my friends. Until next week, this is Tim Bidal. thanking you for listening and signing off.